0: Hello and welcome to the File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a host of other voices, including the world's oldest voice, a synthesised voice, a voice for falling asleep to, and the voice of Oret Gat. But we begin with the sleepy one. Joe Perra is the name of a writer and comedian, but also of his best-known creation, Joe Perra. Perra created Perra as a comedy alter ego so long ago that it can be difficult to spot the join. Over the years, they've appeared on stage in cartoon form and in three series of Joe Perra Talks With You, a TV show without a genre, though you might call it stand up dramedy, charting the capacity for everyday awe of a music teacher in small town Michigan. Most recently, Joe Perra has created a sleep podcast in which the Joe Perra of being in the world is elaborated in episodes that can run from 15 minutes to eight hours, designed to see you through the sleepless nights. Both Joe Perras are coming to Dublin next month for a live show and ahead of that, Culture File spoke to Joe Perra from his basement in Brooklyn. I would say the,
1: the show is positive about certain things. I try and to make a show about things that I believe in, things that have integrity. I don't think we, you know, ignore stuff that's going on or, I don't know, there's a certain darkness to it at times, but I just wanted to focus on the things that do make me hopeful or I, I do find worthwhile in life that I wanted to spend time with. I, Realize that a lot of people wanted to spend time with those things too. Stuff, you know, just like going for breakfast on a Saturday morning, no matter what's going on, that can be a, a decent experience and still a, a nice part of life.
0: And the show does that for a lot of things. Like it has this attitude the, to the world that's quite. It sees sort of holiness in all sorts of uh, unexpected places
1: yeah well one that I'm particularly proud of is the grocery store episode and going to the grocery store when we were writing the first season of the show i couldn't sleep that well myself so i would wake up at 6 a.m and uh, 5 a.m and one of the only places that was open is the grocery store so i go roam around and see the the bright colors, be surrounded by the nice produce and maybe a few deals. And if you get a deal on a couple cans of tomato paste or whatever, you go home, it feels like a nice way to start the day. There's lots of problems with the supermarket too, but uh, I don't know if that feels a decent activity. I think if you are to slow down, I wouldn't know how to describe the exact feeling of a furniture store, but it feels kind of like a slowed-down place where if you were given two hours and all you could do is chest out the different chairs, I think you'd walk away feeling better than when you walked into the store. I just don't think people give themselves that amount of time, and I don't know if it's quite spiritual, but acknowledging that there's something to that feeling beyond just a place that sells chairs. There's a, a a piece inside a lot of furniture stores that feels like it, it shouldn't exist in a store like that, but for some reason it does. I guess the Michigan version of uh, Joe Para is left in Michigan for now but I kind of am always uh, uh, I just started a podcast a sleep podcast a few months ago and I'm always thinking of scenarios for for that and I've been able to put a lot of the ideas that probably would have gone into the show into the TV show are now in the podcast and it's The new outlet for the time being, but really nice because I like that it takes all the production process and approval from networks and the ideas that I find funniest and best can just go right into the the podcast that same month, which is a great thing.
0: In a way, the the podcast, even though that's maybe the newest iteration, goes back to a kind of a really old idea, because it has that sort of talk you to sleep kind of feel about it, which is something you, d- you did a long time ago.
1: Yeah, that it, pretty much. I feel, yeah, there are old radio shows that did what we're trying to do now, and there's other podcasts, too. But we decided we wanted to make it feel like a full soundscape and have an experience and a, transport to different places when you listen to it in a way that you would have uh, in any good artistic work. But, you know, we we just wanted it to uh, use the podcast medium to its fullest. And I I, I think it, podcasting in general has so much potential and ways to grow. I'm excited to have my own crack at it. We like to tinker with it. We not rushed. The first one was 16 minutes, the second one was uh, 22 and then we just released an hour long version of it and an 8 hour long version of it so kind of still figuring out what works. It's nice not to have any constraints other than just what people are willing to listen to.
0: There's a questions that could only be asked in, in Joe Parra, and I thought I'd just uh, pose them to you again. Do you think the stock market could be used for good? No, I think
1: that if you use the... If you make money in foul ways, it's already... The process is spoiled. It's like that uh, spoils everything it touches. It's still like the... It's uh, the long-termism, the way that the people in Silicon Valley are thinking that it doesn't matter if people are hungry or or what life on earth is like now, as long as they'll, the human race survives 100,000 years from now, which is, I don't know, my feeling there's money and resources to feed people they should be fed and taken care of. So I don't know. And it just the way that once you get absorbed in the stock market then you think of everything from a financial perspective and this not a good way to look at the world I don't know on the other hand I hope to retire someday so it's uh, <laughs> I don't know I don't
0: know Joe Perra there and he'll be live at Liberty Hall Theatre Dublin on April 14th. The evening show has sold out, but they've now added a late show at 10pm. Tickets from Ticketmaster. Next, some advice if you want in due course to own a really old voice. Work hard and eat butter at least that is according to the Talish people of the southern mountains of Azerbaijan, renowned for their longevity, among whom live some of the world's oldest humans. Our life hack was gathered by the team of Grammy-winning producer Ian Brennan and his wife, Italian-Rwandan photographer Marilena umohosa Deli, who travelled to record and document the voices of people there. The fruit of the trip is a new album, The Oldest Voice in the World, featuring voices recorded in the Talish mountains, as well as some of Brennan's regular collaborators, including the Kronos Quartet, Deli and Brennan spoke to Culture File about their sessions above the clouds. Look,
2: the cover for this uh, record uh, it features this centenarian woman that uh, is uh, on the mattress on the floor it was snowing we were in this very remote village uh, up in the air and uh, and yet we were in this very warm environment the fire was burning in this furnace and she was just there singing this uh, incredible voices that transport you into another dimension, almost like into another life.
3: We went to Azerbaijan, specifically to the Talish Mountain region where the Talish minority lives near the border of Iran, because reportedly the oldest man in the history of the world is from there, who lived to be uh, 168 years old. And many other people have been documented to live 150 years old, 135, 142 and there are many many centenarians there. And so we we went there uh to hear those voices. Part of the big question is um there's many theories, uh many theories abound from the locals. People are living rurally, you could say almost biblically, um, and, you know, goats everywhere and, and uh, without indoor plumbing. Many of the uh, people sleep on floor-bound mattresses, which would seem almost cruel, but they believe that's better for your health, to be on the ground, sleeping on a very, very hard surface. Some people believe it's the clean air. Some people believe it's the water uh, and the herbs. But a big theme that came up was that love that they were loved in their lives. And
2: also they said that they worked hard and that was a uh, key to their long life. And uh, many of them said uh, uh, because they ate a lot of butter, <laughs> so butter is the secret to a long life. So that's funny. And
3: that made Maralena very happy because she loves Irish butter. You should probably tell them how much you love Irish butter.
2: <laughs> that's true. So uh, you should live a long life, I think. You know. <laughs>
3: that people are expressing their environment and they're expressing their life and that's what we ask them to do not considering themselves singers and in fact in the vast majority of projects we've done uh, the least interesting people tend to be the ones that are practiced and that's not to disregard people that are truly maestros though those people do exist but it's the in between where things tend to be quite mediocre usually and that's the majority of music we normally hear What largely interests me is aging voices as an act of, uh, you know, against ageism, especially in music where the focus is so much on image and youth. And often when people talk of, of aging voices, they talk of people that are in their 40s or their 50s or their 60s. And here are people that have lived two lifetimes in one, and obviously there's even more texture or could be more texture to these voices, and I think there is. Mm -hmm. Cronus Quartet, like so many people that are quite skillful, are quite unthreatened by sound. They welcome it, and they're generous, and they have huge ears, and they hear things that other people don't, and that's part of what they practice their entire lives. And so they hear the beauty that other people might miss on a superficial level and embrace that and celebrate it. There's a beauty in an individuality, and and rather than whether subjectively I like or don't like something, I think what's important objectively is to listen and say, have I heard this before? We get more and more content, but we get more and more repetition of content. And with over half a million songs uploaded weekly now to Spotify, there isn't really that much difference from one to another. And people celebrate the fact that genres are supposedly disintegrating, but that largely equals that everything kind of sounds the same. Uh, And instead, when I hear a voice or a sound I've never heard before, that's what's exciting. Many of my favorite voices did, to my ear, improve with time. People like Sinatra and Chet Baker and and, uh, Billie Holiday and Merle Haggard, I felt were better singers, maybe technically not as good or, or as smooth, but their voice, I think, offered more depth and more emotion. This is oftentimes talking about people that were middle-aged or in their 60s. Here we're talking about people that are 100 plus years old, and it's just something that we don't hear. The importance is to have true diversity, not pseudo-diversity, but true diversity in terms of all elements, including age. And these are voices that really don't sound like very many voices, if any, you've ever heard
2: before, and that is what exactly what we do. We try to provide a platform to voices that are wide, unheard, even censored, and uh, and it deserves to be to be heard by the world,
3: and also men- minoritized languages, Absolutely. Like like the Tawish language. That's right, and to the people that have been disregarded by the 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 majority. So, in other words, like so many, they're. Area, their region was split in half by the powerful, so between Iran and the Soviet Union, they just split it right down the middle. So the region goes on both sides of the border, and where we were is, you know, miles from the border. And there's a, a surprising number of police there, and in, in, in the main village. Uh, and I think it's largely because it's so near to the border. Uh, and so their region is. Intact in their mind yet divided by the governments
2: themselves.
0: Ian Brennan and Marilena Umohosa on documenting the oldest voice in the world. The album The Oldest Voice in the World is out now. Cabbage is the title filmmaker Holly Marie Parnell gave to a three-part collaboration between her mother, herself, and her brother David, a non-mobile, non-verbal person who communicates via eye-tracking technology. Parnell's short film Cabbage, which is currently showing at Sirius Arts Centre in Cove, collages memories and intimate family encounters, as well as David's own texts, to explore the politics of care in the experiences of navigating an ableist world. Rachel Andrew spoke to the filmmaker Holly Marie Panel.
1: I
3: want to ask a question. I want to ask a question. I want to ask a question. Tell me yes or no, I want to ask a question. Tell me yes or no, I want to ask a question.
4: He does a lot of repetition. I want to ask a question. I want to ask a question. I want to ask a question. Can I tell you what I think? I need more time. And he has these fragmented sentences that he creates and it's essentially poetry because he saves these all in a document and works on them and crafts them and over time they become um a beautiful body of poetry which is what I drew on for the film. Yes
3: this is how I say yes this is how I say yes that's funny that's funny that's funny this is how I say yes that's funny this is how I say yes. Change the
4: subject. My name is Holly Marie Parnell I'm an artist-filmmaker who works within a documentary nature. The film takes place in the months leading up to our family's international move back to Ireland. Um, And we had to leave Ireland a decade ago due to severe cuts to disability services. So the film, I wouldn't say is about the move, but it places the characters in that context and sort of inspired a lot of the scenes where my mother is revisiting... um, Documents and old things that she's mining through as she's packing these things away and one of those scenes um, that became very important in the film was when she was um, revisiting David's old medical documents Um, and from almost like 30 years ago um, and because David had a brain injury when he was young um, no one could really make head or tail but we're all figuring out within the medical infrastructure a way to... To him. Change the subject. Do you want me to stop filming? So, the project is essentially a collaboration or a three part triangle between my mother, my brother, and I. So, he's a non mobile and non verbal person, and he communicates. Quite recently, in the last five or six years, he started learning eye tracking technology, which tracks the retina's movements of your eyes and allows him to look at a screen and communicate through a computer. And actually, it, these his sentences and writings, poetry, whatever you want to call it, um, they were very inspiring to the film because they felt like they had an outward invitation to the audience. It made the viewer more active because it almost felt like he was asking the viewer and not even knowing who that viewer is, just the wider um the wider world in which his body has to navigate this ableist paradigm, you know being in a body that is just constantly stared at but also ignored.
1: Change the subject. Do
4: you want me to stop filming?
1: No, I meant something else.
4: So I come from an artist, moving image background and I suppose um, the clear sort of difference in different filmic genres is with artist moving image it could be a lot more less linear less narrative um, a lot less structured Um, that's the background I come from and when I say documentary I think this is the first project that really um, takes from the documentary world of actually recording like the real and creating it sort of linear narrative story Everything else I've made in the past as well actually is always interested in filming those that I'm most close with because I'm interested in new forms of knowledge that are around lived experience and embodied knowledge. All of my films before have been made using my phone and the reason for this, well, <laughs> money as well but, and access, but it's very intimate and a, and a camera really is a body in itself. Um, and it changes an atmosphere within a space. And I was always very, like, married to my phone because I felt, this is so intimate, so casual. It's always with me. It's another appendage. It's like another arm. And for this project, I... The <laughs> it's really just a technical thing. I was like, there's, I need to get close-ups of a lot of actual words and documents. I was taking a lot of footage in the evening at night time, which phones can't really, like, pick up that light, and I was... That was the time that I could actually spend with my mother when she wasn't at work, it was in the evening, it was just kind of, evenings are a time of like reflection too, it's when you quiet down and you're not sort of in the buzz of the day. For me it was a process of actually learning how to make the larger, more professional camera feel as much like a phone as possible. These are all the documents that way back in 1990 when David first took ill, I mean, they're. Shortly after, we were able to take him home, and after having those just really negative conversations with some of the doctors about his future and and uh, sort of that kind of sense of just writing him off, that I just felt no. I need Thinking that. about language in the film, I was really interested in how, first of all, language was used, and how David used the eye gaze technology in these sort of pre-made sentences and how he found his voice within these pre-made lines but then how does he also find his voice within this framed system of the words that describe him and how my mother finds her own voice within that now and I think her revisiting these documents the reason that was powerful to me was because she was revisiting something 30 years later as a woman now in her 60s and I think with time comes power strength and resilience so time became a material as well at the end of the film after all the credits finish i there's a scene where i say to david i said david what do you think about the title cabbage for our film and he just like roared laughing and gave like the biggest like support yeah it is a bold title but it's um been accepted by well the most important person being david and it's just funny and also that is what the whole film is about is about definitions and removing the power from that so that i just felt like that that it has to be called that
1: no i meant something else i'm going to start again
0: Holly Marie Parnell there, and the reporter was Rachel Andrews. Cabbage is on show at Sirius Arts Centre in Cove until April 15th. And finally, how does art smell? As we continue our series of essays from Orat Gat, this time the critic and writer is thinking about the role smell plays in how we experience art, sometimes accidentally, sometimes through careful organisation. This is Orat Gat's Scent Stories.
5: A book I edited, a catalog of a foundation's art collection, arrives in the post. The book is over a thousand pages long and the package is large and heavy. The book is shrink-wrapped, and when I unfold the nylon, it smells like a forest. The foundation had commissioned Norwegian artist Sisil Toles to create a scent that was printed on the inside covers of the book. Smell 3 underscore 4 2020 was made of smell molecules the artist collected from trees. Smell is part of the way trees communicate with each other, like how their root structures meet underground in a kind of handhold that allows trees and fungi to share water and nutrients if needed. It all feels very close to human. Tolas describes herself as a scent artist or a smell researcher. She calls her studio in Berlin a lab. The other time I've seen her work was part of an installation by artist Jena Sutella and writer Elvia Wilk at the Science Gallery in London called Nother. It's spelled with a double n, so when you read it, the lowercase n's look like an m. It looks like mother, just not. It was a darkened room with a sound work about care, body, and contact, and a bench running along the length of the temporary walls. Sitting there, you would scratch the walls, and they would emit a scent—the tallest designed to respond to the warmth of touch, thus creating a sense of togetherness between the exhibition goers in the space. Who are smelling the way the walls interact with themselves and the other people in the gallery. After a lifetime of being told not to touch the art, scratching a wall and sniffing it to engage with the smell work feels like a new way of being around art. A lot of artists use words like embodied to describe the experience that they would like for their viewers to have in front of their work. I feel they often exaggerate. At an art gallery, you are a body in space, but mostly a body moving in prescribed ways. You walk slowly up to a work, you look at it closely, perhaps lean over to read a wall label next to it. Politely, you move away. Of course, not all art is like that, but this is the first image I have, and I see a lot of art. But then, I remember huge vases with lilies at the entrance to the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna. How fragrant and gorgeous they were. How they made walking into the museum feel so special, wonderfully unexpected, old-fashioned too. The Frick Collection in New York also has fresh cut flowers in different rooms, their scent domestic and rich, adding to the effect of the wealthy industrialist's former home and collection, now a museum. The scent makes the place feel different. It can also change your expectation of the art itself. At an exhibition about sound art from the Middle East in Nottingham Contemporary in the UK, a series of smell works by Iranian artist Shirin Yousefi is dispersed throughout the space. It's a tour of the scents of the Kurdish regions of Turkey, Syria, Iran and Iraq, displaced to the museum. In one area, it smells like the spices I remember from the street market near my childhood home. In another, it smells like grass. It brings a place that, for a UK audience, may be in elsewhere very close to the body, to the self, to the present. Also, there's something so brave about putting on a scent work in a sound art exhibition It's a claim for art to be physical. And art can be. I'm not sure if I remember this correctly, but in my mind, before I really saw Richard Wilson's 1987 installation, 2050, I could smell it. It didn't smell like a gas station, none of that faint sense of disaster or fume or travel. It just smelled metallic, like a matter fighting with the air. The installation fills the room. I first saw it at Saatchi Gallery in London in the early 2000s. You walked in through a platform, or a walkway, like a narrow hallway where you were surrounded by the work, which floods the space with recycled engine oil. Reaching just above my waist, it was almost impossible not to touch. It's so reflective, so dark. Wilson has described how he'd wanted to make a work whose internal volume is greater than the physical boundaries of the piece. It's glossy, greasy, shiny. Had you not known what it was, would bring up so many other materials, marble in its sheen, water in its sense of stillness, even though you know it's constantly slightly in motion, and blood so viscous. But mainly, when I think back at it, it's not visual but physical. The wanting to touch, the smell of it, how unlike anything else it was to stand there. I'm an art critic. When people ask about my relationship to art, Not questions like, what gives you the right to critique someone else's work, but the real questions. What makes you so interested in art? What it is you look for? Why does it matter? I reach for answers about really engaging with other people. I say we live in a growingly visual world, and I think that contemporary art can lead us in explaining and exploring and understanding this world. But my real emotional answer is that when I look at art, I want to have an intense view into someone else's vision of the world. Walking into Wilson's installation flooded my senses. That metallic smell, the not being able to touch, the otherworldliness of it shook something in me.
0: Orit got there with Scent Stories. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back next Saturday with more art that passes the sniff test. Till then, bye now.